Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology professor, I'm a licensed nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach. I run Strength Guild, um, as well as Live for Hope, a bunch of other stuff. So. Okay, today we have Dr. Patrick Davidson. Uh, Dr. Davidson, maybe just a word or two about yourself? Sure. Uh, I am a PhD in exercise physiology. I've worked as a professor at a couple of schools. I've gone out into the private sector. I was working at Peak Performance in New York City, and I'm currently looking to open up a new fitness business in New York City. Oh, cool. Yeah. Background in, uh, in strongman and mixed martial arts. Oh, excellent. Okay, you're going you're gonna to fit in here nicely. Uh, we've got one bit of news. We have one bit of listener mail, and then, uh, per usual, we'll get to Dr. Davidson's uh, background. And then after the break, just so everyone is aware, if you want to tune us out now, <laughs> is uh, dopamine. We're going to talk about neurotransmitters and the brain, different hemispheres of the brain, different way neurotransmitters affect performance and muscle function. So. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Uh, having said that, let's get to the news. I wanted to share this. This was alerted uh, to me through Twitter. And I apologize. I can't remember who sent me this, and I should have been aware of this myself because the senior author on this new study is Peter Lemon, who was my advisor for many years. Um, but Pete's group, and the first author is Arash Bandigan, uh, they are looking at protein requirements again, but a little more specifically for bodybuilders. The title of this is The Indicator Amino Acid Derived Estimate of Dietary Protein Requirements for Male Bodybuilders on a non-training day is several fold greater than the current RDA. Now, most of our audience knows, knows that strength training brings, brings on certain requirements, right, that are higher than the RDA. Um, but here's the background. It says, despite a number of studies indicating increased dietary protein needs in bodybuilders with the use of the nitrogen balance technique, the Institute of Medicine has concluded, based in part on methodologic concerns, that, quote, no additional dietary protein is suggested for healthy adults undertaking resistance or endurance exercise, close quote. So they're not buying it, despite decades, right, of literature. And not just, not just the nitrogen balance, stable isotopes as well. But what, what um, this group did... Uh, from Western Ontario, University of Western Ontario, I believe. I know that's where uh, Pete is anyway. Uh, the aim was to assess the dietary protein requirements of healthy young bodybuilders on a non-training day, uh, measuring oxidation, right? So they're going to look at, for lack of a better way to put this, protein burning. Like th they gave them escalating doses of protein and they saw how much was oxidized and they knew how much was coming off on your breath because they used stable isotopes. That's, that's the, it's the IAAO technique the indicator amino acid oxidation technique. So that should make sense to listeners that if you eat a large amount of this labeled uh, amino acid and you're on a certain amount of protein, uh, it, you could kind of trace it through your body. And if it comes off on your breath, then you burned it, right? You burnt it, you oxidized it, and you didn't deposit it in muscle tissue or elsewhere. So um, they actually had these guys come in on several occasions, four to eight times. So this is very thorough. And they gave them protein intakes ranging from 0.1, so essentially none, up to 3.5 grams per kilogram per day. So, again, 3.5 grams per kg per day. That's, that's a very large amount of protein. That's well over a gram per pound. Um, and then for two days before they had them come in, they had all of them consume 1.5 grams per kg per day of protein. So uh, the, the reason for that is they want to get them in sort of this... Uh, you know, steady state. Like if you, you can't overfeed massively or underfeed protein and then do your study. So they tried to set them up on a sort of an even keel situation. Here's the results. Um, by using this technique, 
they determined that the requirement for these young male bodybuilders was between 1.7 and 2.2 grams per kg per day. So that 2.2 is dead on one gram per pound that oftentimes you'll hear float around in, in lay circles. And honestly, I use that myself. Um, a gram per pound, I guess, is being validated in this, this project that that's probably what you need. And the RDA is almost certainly not what you need. In fact, it says uh, these results suggest that at rest on a non-training day, these young bodybuilders, their requirements exceeded the current recommendations from the Institute of Medicine by 2.6 fold. Uh, so again, the Gen Pop and the RDA not built for the bodybuilding crowd. So gram per pound validated. Thank you, Pete. And I, I can't keep pointing just to him, of course. The first author is Arash Bandigan. So this is from the um, American Society of Nutrition. This, that's my group. Uh, High-end stuff. They have some of the best journals out there for nutrition. All right. And then we have the, the question. The listener question was through email. And both of you guys, I'm sure, would be beneficial to chip in on this. This says uh, from Nathan. Hi, Lonnie. Wondering if you can answer this on air. What do you or uh, Phil or Dr. Mike or Mike or Rob or any of you guys think is the best way to set up for deadlifting? I'm not referring to foot placement, hip angle, etc., but more about the process of getting tight before the pull. And he goes on to say, I have read and heard that setting up at the top allows you to brace more and keep up a more neutral back before loading the hamstrings. Uh, but flexibility can limit this type of setup. Also, many great deadlifters bend over and grab the bar before bracing and loading up from the bottom position. He underlines bottom position. I've heard that this may not be as good because you can't set your spine in as stable of a position. Which is preferable? Is it a personal preference? And also, how would you change for a one rep max versus just multiple reps? All right, Phil, that's a lot. Uh, what do you think? It's a whole lot. Um, I mean, it's it's very individual, and in, in, I think. I mean, it depends on the lifter, too, especially... It's a lot harder for bigger lifters to set up than it is for smaller lifters. Um, you know, you have somebody that's has a lot of mass and girth to them. It's a lot more uncomfortable even getting that position. Mm -hmm. So you'll see people that, you know, they'll take that big breath of air standing up. Um, and they can set themselves up in a, in a, a fast amount of time and not run out of air. <clears throat> I've never been that way. I've tried it. I take too much time getting my grip set. So I always bend over at the hip grab the bar, take my air on long legs, then set in. Um, okay. Honestly, I think more important than that is just learning how to get tight. Then, I mean, it's learning how to set back against the bar instead of sitting down to the bar um, and things like that. It's what I, Pavel called it wedging. Um, so, and that's where I see most people make the mistakes. And, you know, the, the minute in powerlifting and – uh, you know, most strength sports, I think what people lack is the amount of tightness needed. People think they're tight when they're not. Um, mm -hmm. the, the amount of tightness that you need to get is uncomfortable. So oh, God, it's yeah. fighting that extra one or two seconds to, okay, you think your back set? Okay, it's not. Set it harder, you know, engage your abs as hard as you freaking can. I mean, like things are going to pop in your head. Now you're tight. Now pull back. Um, that's probably the biggest thing and it's just that that's a learned skill um and it's going to take single rep after single rep after single rep and you're going to hit one that feels good and then you try and repeat that and then over time hopefully your repetitions at that one that feel good they start to go up okay. um so so yeah i mean it's well to his point would you you're talking about getting really tight there would you do mm -hmm. that just for a set of multiple reps or, or um well, generally, I mean, on a multiple rep set, I don't. I'm a big fan of not having people do bump and go, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you just get stronger that way. I mean, we'll have sets where it's like, okay, just just knock them out uh, on a last set or something. Let's see how many you can get. But in general, all the people I train, it's hit a rep, set it down, reset, pull again, um, a pause triple or a pause five or whatever we're going for, because I want to learn that reset position. Uh, if you're doing bump and goes, the first one always sucks, and like number two through five are easy, and then it starts getting hard again. Okay. 
because you're in a totally different position when you're doing that bump and go stuff than you are starting from the floor. So we want to get good at that dead stop start position. So okay. um, I would train yourself. If, if your goal is to get strong and get good at deadlifting, I would train yourself to reset each rep. If that means you need to let go of the bar, which I have some lifters that have to do that and they stand up again, fine. I don't care. Um, I don't let go. I just go back to high hips, reset again, pull back, pull. Um, so and so it's just learning that. Like I said, it's the biggest thing, in my opinion, is learning to set against the bar, not to the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and just getting a greater amount of tightness than you think you're able to. Okay. And then as far as the setting up up top with your back first versus grab the bar and brace from the bottom up, is that per- preferable, like a, a personal preference? <sighs> I don't really know anybody that like... Uh, they don't think I've about it that way? i people try it. Like they try and set their lumbar and then they try and mechanically get down to the bar. I don't... I don't know many people that actually do that. Like he talked about, he sees a lot of strong lifters that set up at the bottom. Grab the bar uh, before bracing. A, there's probably the a reason for that. <laughs> you know? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those deals where uh, look at the majority, not the outlier. There's going to be some outliers out there that are really strong that do things that probably won't work for anybody else but them. But if the majority of strong people are doing something, it's probably a good cue that you should probably do that too. Um, yeah okay type of thing no so okay good stuff all right thank you dr davidson for uh your patience there let let's get to you um let's start off with your origin story listeners usually like to hear about what led you to you know becoming who you are now academically athletically i mean you could start at the very beginning if you like i mean this is is something that happened in high school or before um what what's your story all right well you know, it, it's always hard to know where to begin and how to <clears throat> get to the point quickly without uh, making it like um, some kind of a soap opera deal. But, you know, I, I, I've been a, a competitive athlete my whole life. And uh, I would say that that really playing sports as a kid made way more sense to me than any other element in life. Like I think I had a fairly difficult upbringing and difficult family situation. So I felt like I could escape pretty much everything by going into sports and like in terms of like uh trying to figure out personal interactions and social stuff like that was way too confusing and too much gray area but sports is like purely black and white and like either i can dominate you on the field or you beat me and it's very clear and i think that transitioned very nicely into training because either you can lift it or you can't or you can run this time or you can't um you know, so I, I like things that are fairly objective in black and white and that make perfect sense and you're either good or you're bad and you get immediate feedback. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think that I've just spent a considerable amount of time training and playing sports and competing because it's been very rewarding to me uh, and it's given me a lot of positive feedback. And, and if I've worked hard and trained hard, I've made progress and gotten good results and really good feedback. So um, <clears throat> that's, that's really like, I think the most underlying thing regarding my, my background and my upbringing is that I love physical activity and I love competing and I love training. And, and that's just led me to everything that I've ever gotten into. So, you know, I, uh, I had some, some issues coming out of high school. I, I played, uh, football and baseball primarily. And then I played baseball in college, but I had some, some issues in terms of like partying and stuff like that initially in college, which really um, like I, I just I, I bombed out of college the first couple of times. And um, and I, I ended up getting into mixed martial arts after that. I think it was a, um, a pretty good avenue to, to gain some discipline and learn how to, um, you know, begin to take care of myself a little bit better as a in a responsible manner. But um you know, I was able to compete in, in submission wrestling and, and mixed martial arts and, and end up fighting as a professional. Uh, but I was, I was still kind of lost in life. And I remember my coach ultimately said, you know, why don't you consider like looking into educating yourself in fitness and training? I mean, I like that's what you do. That's that's really all you do in life. So why don't you pursue that? And it was kind of like, oh, that's a pretty good idea. Maybe I'll do that. 
So I, um, <clears throat> at that time, I had, I had had a bachelor's degree in history, and, um, and I, I transitioned into a master's program in athletic training. Um, I didn't really know what athletic training was, and then when I found out I'd be taping ankles and spraying Gatorade bottles into people's mouths on the <laughs> sideline, I, I, I really didn't like that idea, and I, I switched over to strength and conditioning because I realized that was actually where you learn the science of, of training people. And um, so I, I pursued that, and I got a master's degree in strength and conditioning. Um, during that time, I realized that I was pretty good academically. Um, I had actually found something that I cared about enough to study, and once I started reading and studying, I, I learned that I was actually pretty talented in, in reading, writing, and studying. So I, I just pursued on, and I went for a PhD in exercise physiology, um, you know, I, I got much more heavily involved in the training side of strength and really strength and conditioning. And I began doing like, uh, some competing in Olympic style weightlifting. Uh, I finished my PhD. I went to Brooklyn college. I took my first appointment there. I started a strength and conditioning program there. That was a school that really had no training history for athletes. So I kind of built a weight room there. Um, I had a couple of teams that were beginning the process of coming in and, and training. I was developing the, uh, the undergrad students as, as kind of up and coming strength and conditioning coaches. I ended up, uh, going back to my alma mater at Springfield college and, uh, and taking a position there. And, um, you know, it, it, I thought that that was going to be kind of where I would spend the rest of my career. It didn't, it didn't work out that well as a fit within that department. So after uh, three years of being a professor there, I uh, ended up moving back to New York City and took a job in the private sector with Peak Performance. Hmm. Uh, peak, peak Performance, ultimately, uh, just from a business standpoint, went out of business, and uh, and I'm working independently in New York City right now and and trying to gain some funding for a for a business. But uh, while I was at Springfield College, you know, I. Um, like really, like my first week there, I was I was just training and and I met some of the students and and a number of them competed in strongman, and and they were just kind of like you know you should come train with us and and I did and I ended up being pretty good at that sport and uh, we had we developed a team there uh, that I was coaching. We had a group of of strongman competitors, and uh, during that time uh, I went on. I, I competed in a few national championships, qualified for world championships. Uh, took top 10 at the Arnold in the World Championships for 175. We had a couple of athletes that have gone on and done some pretty incredible things, including uh, Rob Kearney and Zach Hadge. Zach Hadge will be competing on the main stage this year at the Arnold against all the big boys, uh, Zavikas and uh, Bjornsson and Brian Shaw and, and all the monsters. So, you know, we, we developed a, a really good team in, in a tiny little Division three school in the middle of nowhere. Um, so it, you know, I, I feel like I've got a pretty good background in terms of, of the academic side of things, as well as like actually competing and, and training at a pretty high level in a strength sport. Right. So what about training philosophy? I mean, are you heavily like science and evidence based in the way you set up programming or have you relied on your experiences in the, in the trenches and athletics? Like what kind Both. of, what kind of, do you have For certain sure. things you're drawn to? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've read all the traditional sort of like uh, Russian stuff, all those big books, um, and I have a pretty good idea about block training, and, and I've gone to, you know, some of the, the talks by guys like Val Nesedkin, and uh, pretty familiar with like windows of trainability and omega wave thought, um, setting up things based on biofeedback numbers and, and all that kind of stuff, but I still run things like a like a you know more like a coach in another sport i always i always looked at like things i, I thought people were wasting so much time in their practices and I, I just look at it like you're going to practice and i have to keep things going and be very very strict in terms of like uh making sure every day is a good solid day um i don't know if you can remember kind of what it felt like to go to a football practice when you were a kid like when i'm running a training session it feels much more like that then I think what you would think of as a traditional strength session with people kind of sitting around for six minutes between sets. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, I'll tell you what, uh, so we don't get ahead of ourselves, and I don't start asking you too many specifics about the topic, we're going to go to break, everyone. And when we come back, we're going to talk to uh, Dr. Patrick Davidson about dopamine and training. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everyone, we're back. It's Phil and Lonnie and John, and we have with us today Dr. Davidson, Pat Davidson, and we're going to talk about dopamine and training. Uh, I think maybe we should start with some definitions, uh, Pat. What's, what is dopamine and what does it mean to lifters? How about that? Sure. So when, when you're talking about dopamine, you're talking about a chemical that the brain uses to be able to communicate from one neuron to the next neuron. So when you when you think about muscles working, you think about a neuron coming down and, and terminating right before you get to a muscle fiber. And then the neuron will release some kind of a chemical and it'll be acetylcholine and it'll travel across the space between the end of the neuron and the muscle. It'll bind to the receptors on the muscle and it will cause ions to move in and out of the muscle that will result in the electrical activity that is muscle contraction. So, so neurons aren't really that different. They, they don't directly touch each other. They don't send a direct electrical message from one to the next. They terminate just before contact with the next neuron in line. And neurons release different chemicals that will float across the space between each other. They will bind to the receptor on the next neuron and they'll cause an ionic change and a, a change in, in charge of the next neuron that results in either a, a facilitation or an inhibition of the next neuron. And, uh, and dopamine is one of many, many, many different kinds of chemical messengers that the nervous system uses to send messages within itself. Um, dopamine is the most well-studied neurotransmitter of all of them that exist. And, uh, and it's got a, a number of different responses that it seems to cause in different neurons 
in the brain. And it's a, it's a very interesting topic that is unfortunately incredibly complicated and has no single answer and is, is one that we can, um, you know, I'll do my best to talk about what we know and I'll also speculate. I have no problem speculating and giving you thoughts about uh, what I think things mean and how I manipulate things in my own mind to try to get the most out of the dopaminergic system. So I don't know if you need any other specific things. I mean, we can certainly talk about how it's a, a peptide-based thing, and and it's part of the catecholamines, which are all monoamines. But you know, th that's probably more chemistry-related than rather not as high in the functional significance of dopamine. Yeah, yeah, it, it's always difficult with something like that. I can tell you this: when we've looked at different catecholamines in the lab. Um, uh, we're, we're trying to manipulate it largely with coffee, and I'm not going to make this a coffee discussion, but it's interesting that some of these neurotransmitters, you know, and listeners, you might be familiar with, you might have heard dopamine is a reward neurotransmitter and that sort of thing. Um, it's interesting, for example, we have to be very careful when we do like stimulants stuff, coffee before training, for example, because people can, they can get a, a dopamine response just through the anticipa anticipation that they might be getting coffee. So, right. So we have to start doing a coffee versus decaf versus water condition, like literally three conditions when we would study things, because you start getting some of these systems firing reward systems, uh, just because, you know, you, of course it's a blinded study and they're getting a, a special hot brown liquid. They don't know if it's real coffee and they're going to get fired up or not. And even with the decaf, you know, they're starting to release dopamine and things like that. It's just interesting stuff. Um, but boiling it down to make it practical, I think, is is what becomes sort of tough, right? Because there seems to be this from the psychological side and anticipation and reward to what it does peripherally. Um, yeah. So what's what's your take? Is, is your interest more central nervous system, uh, peripheral nervous system and muscle function or, you know, stretch shortening cycle or something or um, that you know, sort of thing? I, I would say that I'm... I'm somebody I, I like to I'm just a curious person. You know, I don't I don't ever really have that much of a specific agenda other than the fact that I'm curious in topics and I like to see kind of where they go. And and I don't know if any other topic has ever led me into more of a curiosity realm than dopamine. Um I, I've just got a feeling about the topic that it's much more significant than than most people have any idea about. Um, so, so I don't know if I would necessarily pigeonhole myself into one realm other, other than to say that, uh, one thing I, I believe very strongly about the brain is that it works within the concept of functional systems. And what I mean by functional systems is that the brain never does just one thing at a time. And, and by that, I I think of the brain as a as a as an engine that has a motor component, a sensory component, an emotional component, and a cognitive component, and and you never get one separate from all the others. Everything that you do has all of those components tied together in, in some way or another. So and and really, whenever the brain is is executing anything, it's driven through the, the realm of the neurotransmitter. You know, it's you, you have to break things down in, in science and reductionism. And at a certain point, you, you say that the brain with everything that it does, and it does a million things, but it, it's the thing that causes us to be who we are more than anything else. It always will function from having that cognitive, emotional, motor, and sensory component at the same time. So you can never just, you can't isolate beyond that point. Uh, so I think that, that that speaks to my point of view regarding your, your specific question uh, on, on where my interest lies. I need to know the integration of all of those realms of the functional system if I want to have any hope of understanding the functional significance of dopamine's role within uh, the way the brain works and, and more specifically to this topic, movement. And I'll, I'll do my best to speak specifically to movement here. Okay. Okay, so right, I'm just trying to line this up with some of the interest and some of the things that listeners may have heard, whether it's, you know, pre-workout stimulants and are they addictive or 
muscle function, you know, is a lot of dopamine or not enough dopamine beneficial, anything along those lines. And, and Dr. Mike, you had you had a question. Yeah, um, you know, and this is certainly, um, you know, not my particular area of interest, but I do have an interest in like drugs and their interactions and like their pharmacokinetics and their interactions with with other physiological systems. But um, a lot of people need to kind of keep in mind, I mean, dopamine is, you know, one of, you know, 50 plus neurotransmitters in the body and along with even like, you know, norepinephrine and especially like serotonin and and dopamine and serotonin kind of play off each other and they're in their and um, they're highly related, especially with like depression and people that suffer through depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of people that go through types of depression have like lower levels of dopamine and, and serotonin. And a lot of times, um, you know, when they go get um, prescription medications, they usually are prescribed um, what are called like SSRIs or serotonin reuptake inhibitors sure. um, to increase the uptake of serotonin and dopamine levels in the body and within the brain to help like treat depression. Um, I, I've seen some stuff in the past that, you know, like re- obviously exercise, but, but particularly more like resistance training can actually help increase, you know, dopamine, uh, you know, responses, especially like, you know, even like post-exercise where you kind of um, get the, um, you know, uh, endorphin release and response, you know, during exercise and even post-exercise. And those are all, you know, associated with, you know, hormonal responses and, and, and um you know, neurotransmitter responses, of course. So, I mean, I would suspect that even resistance exercise would, would increase dopamine levels more so than even um, aerobic exercise or endurance exercise. Um, but, you know, one of the one of the most powerful things that I think people can do, especially like in the clinical setting, um, I mean, it's it, we talk about, you know, endurance exercise and, of course, you know, strength and power, but we, we always tend to talk about, for the most part, how it does with like movement and performance and less of its impact and benefit really on the on the clinical side with a variety of clinical types of patients. I mean, I mean, those that have like or suffer from MS or multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's, I mean, you know, if 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 you have somebody, if you're working with somebody that's really good, I mean, there's been a lot of research showing the benefits of resistance training, like with those types of conditions. So, I mean, everything, just like you said, I mean, everything is just so interacted. Um, you know, and, and complicated, but, um, you know, those are, those are also important things to kind of discuss. Right. I, so both nutrition and training, of course, affecting these systems. So, um, so Dr. Davidson, what's your take as far as, do you purposely ever try to manipulate this with training programs or the pre-workout situation or, or anything along those lines? Oh, I absolutely try to manipulate the dopaminergic system through the way that I design training. And, um, and I'll, I'm going to talk to that. I'd, I'd first like to, I have no, I, I think I had this beautiful answer about dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine that I was saying to myself in my living room. And, and because John, you, you brought up about 10 different topics and, and I kind of want to talk to a couple of them before sure. I specifically get into, um, talking about designing training programs okay. with yeah. a dopaminergic mind, uh, as the focal point. So you know, when you look at the literature specifically on exercise and fatigue as it relates to concentrations of dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine, what you see is a very clear divide between dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine. And uh, and, and that's very interesting because when you look at the two hemispheres of the brain, the left and the right, we see – and this is normal. Sometimes with left-handed people, you can have the reverse – but generally speaking, we have a left hemisphere of the human brain that's a dopamine dominant hemisphere and a right hemisphere that is a norepinephrine and serotonin dominant hemisphere. And you could say that dopamine is your primary parasympathetic neurotransmitter versus norepinephrine and serotonin being more sympathetic uh, neurotransmitters. And, and you could also say that The reason that you have more serotonin on the right side of the brain is because you don't have as much dopamine on the right side of the brain. Dopamine, when dopamine concentrations increase, it seems to have a role, an antagonistic role on the concentrations of serotonin. So uh, it's very interesting that we're set up that way. And uh, and in terms of, of what it is that allows serotonin to flourish, and dopamine to decrease is is actually sensory information from an afferent standpoint going back to the brain. 
the lower the amount of sensory information going back to the brain in terms of particularly tactile information and things within the peripersonal realm of space, you will see a decrease in, in dopamine. The, the more you reduce uh, tactile sensory information, the greater dopamine will rise. <clears throat> this is something that's been document, documented in things like sensory deprivation chambers, which result in significant rises in dopamine. But even more uh, strikingly, when you're asleep, dopamine levels rise to their greatest possible uh, point uh, during sleeping conditions. And this is because there's largely like a, uh, uh, a dystonia and an atonia of the body, like your muscle tone just goes to nothing, especially during REM sleep, and your dopamine levels surge. Uh, and, and that's really, in many ways, what dreaming is, is, is high concentrations of dopamine in a certain tract of neurons and, and it's the same tract of neurons associated with schizophrenia and hallucinations and things like that. But um, you, you're, you're receiving very little sensory information going back to the brain. So it allows dopamine to become unconstrained and really go to a very high level, which, um, you know, ultimately with the brain, you want balance. You want times with very high levels of dopamine and other times with very low levels and very high levels of serotonin and norepinephrine. So it's, it's always this fluctuation and variability that is the ultimate goal it's it's the same thing within economics where diversification is is actually in a lot of times people ask me what's the best way to do something and i always say well if you have a lot of ways to do something that's the best way to do something uh you know you need to diversify portfolios if you're going to become rich and you need to have variability of systems and flexibility of systems if you're going to be healthy and a high performer um and it's no different with the brain and probably more pronounced with the functioning of the brain than any other organ system in truth. So <clears throat> that's that's something that's that's critical to kind of keep in mind is that whenever I'm talking about things that raise dopamine, and, and perhaps I'll take a step back and say why it's important to actually raise dopamine. And the reason that it's important to raise dopamine is that uh, – the highest dopaminergic individuals amongst us are the most goal-directed, driven, uh, capable of dealing with stressful situations, and, um, and, and able to just execute the game plan people in society. It's, it's a double-edged sword, and it's dependent upon which neurons are actually involved, because the other people that are super high in dopamine are also people that are mentally ill, uh, schizophrenics, autistic, Asperger's individuals are also uh, hyperdopaminergic, and and that gets down to which tract in the brain is hyperdopaminergic. Um, but ultimately, if you're working at a very high level, if your brain is doing well and it's a high dopamine brain, you're a go-getter. You're a a general in the military. You are a quarterback in the NFL. You can handle stress. You're able to deal with extreme environments. You're tough. You're resilient. You have grit. All of those things are associated with dopamine. You can achieve in life. You can aspire to things, and you can. Let me. This. Let me just let me just jump in real quick. I, I, that's a really great point, and um, I, I, I mean, you know, of course, we learn things every day. How does somebody become that way? You know what I mean? And I don't I mean sure. is that personality Need, stuff? Is it environment? Is it, you know parents? Is it being around? Those, I'm sure that I know there's a, a, a multiple factors involved, of course. There's multiple factors. It's always a case of a genome interacting with chance and environment that drives the show. Um, ultimately, it seems as though the people with the highest concentrations of dopamine are those who were born with the, uh, the D4-DR7 mutation gene. Um, so, and, and that's a... Uh, it tends to be populations that exist farther away from Africa than any other populations have the 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 kind of mutant gene for that. Um, but it's it's a situation of like uh, that gene codes for the dopamine receptor protein, and it's a receptor protein that that basically just uh, doesn't bind with dopamine as well. So you constantly need increasing, increasing, increasing amounts of dopamine. It, it also tends to be people that are addicts and, um, you yeah. know, they just can't get enough. They're never satisfied. So it's sort of like, uh, what's the point of that? And it seems to be that it was the, 
the gene that uh, they speculate it probably caused people to leave the homeland and spread out around the planet and occupy new environments and want to be exploratory. It's just people that are always itchy and, and need more and more and more stimulation. Um, which is interesting, you know. They they now is that is that is that more stimulation in terms of like like drugs or s just like those types of stimulants or just more stimulation, just like emotional stimulation, you know, like mental st those types of things. All of the above. Oh, okay, great. All of the above. It, you know these people. Like it's 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 probably the people that are actually on this podcast. We're curious. We're driven. We want to know every little detail and nuance. Uh, it's, it, you know, people that don't do anything with their lives, they're not so high on the dopamine track. People that wake up early in the morning to talk to other exercise science nerds and strength nerds, we're those people. You know, people that are listening to this are the dopaminergic population. So it's very much, a, uh, I think that I'm so interested in this because it speaks so directly to me. Um, the more I learn about it, the more I'm like, wow, that, that is who I am fundamentally as a person. Um, you know, I, I, I can't get enough. I always need to learn the next little detail in terms of that deadlift question on the coaching queue. It's like, I want to know every little detail about how to deadlift so I can move the greatest amount of weight. It, why? I almost have no idea why I just can't help myself. Yeah, That's just yeah. what I do as a person. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's a situation of like there's, there's some positive outcomes that come from being a very dopamine-driven person. And, and you could be on both sides or, or both edges of the same sword because if the, the high dopamine person in a really good uh, environment is the person that can become like a, 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 a military general, like I said, they can achieve incredible things in life because they're so focused and so goal-directed and they can also, in the wrong environment, become a bum under the bridge who can't stop drinking or, or shooting up heroin or something like that. So it's 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 very interesting to me that that you can have both of those things within the same genome. Uh, and it, it's certainly given me a lot of empathy living in New York City for, for people that you walk by on the street. But um, when I'm designing programs and training, I, I try to think about things that would be highly impactful for the dopamine driven mind and and I think that what it comes down to is meticulous and very specific goals uh, and and the demonstration of progress uh, dopaminergic individuals want to know that they are going somewhere and that they are moving in a very specific direction and generally speaking that is forward uh, so it's kind of like uh, you know, I, I wrote a training book that, uh, you know, it's, it's called Mass. It's primarily a hypertrophy-oriented book. But when you do the, the workouts in it, it, it would be like one workout is, um, you know, it's a circuit. It's a 30-second on, 30-second off circuit of 10 exercises that you go through three times. It's very metabolically oriented. But the, 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 um, during your 30-second work window, I'm asking you to get 15 reps and if you get 15 reps and you did it in, in 15 seconds, good. Stop right there. Move on to the next exercise. See if you can get 15 reps for all 10 exercises for all three rounds. And if you're able to accumulate 450 reps, then you need to increase weight. And, you know, people that do this, it's, it's again, it's kind of, it's speaking to your question regarding resistance training. And it's also speaking to the topic of velocity when it comes to dopamine. Uh, Whenever the more that you move, the greater the range of motion that you move through, and the faster that you move, all seem to increase dopamine concentrations in the brain. And if I can give you a very specific goal that you have to work towards, particularly if it's a goal that's very difficult to achieve, is going to be the situation that causes you to release the greatest amount of dopamine. Now, dopamine is also a very powerful neuroplastic neurotransmitter, which means that it's going to modify behaviors and cause you to ultimately get better at the thing that were the neurons directing the activity that you were performing, uh, if, if that makes sense. Um, but you'll tend to do more of the thing 
that cause the dopamine response because it's a reward neurotransmitter. And it also is heavily involved with plastically remodeling the synapse, the cell body, and the axon of the the neuronal system. Okay, so if I can just clarify then, essentially it's like the classic training principle of specificity applied to reward systems. Correct. Yeah. The, the, The movement system and the motivation system of the brain are intimately connected. They're primarily connected through the subconscious level of perception. So it's it's much more subtle than most people understand. But if you have a goal that you're moving towards, even if it's a very subconscious level, you will move faster and faster and faster and you will try harder and harder and harder the more that you value the goal. If you don't value the outcome on a subconscious level, the brain is always weighing these things. What is the perceived cost of the movement and the physical output that you're doing? And what is the perceived benefit of the reward that you're seeking? If the benefit rises, you will work harder on a subconsciously driven level to try to reach that that benefit. Now, it, when you really think about all of this stuff, it always goes back to what is the ultimate point of being on this planet, which is survival, and are we predatory animals or prey animals, and we're predatory animals. Dopamine is a hunting-driven neurotransmitter. It is driven through the olfactory system. It is driven through the distant vision system. It's based on predators stalking prey. It's based on smelling prey in the distance. It's based on seeing prey in the distance. It's based on chasing them. It's based on delaying your gratification for a bigger reward that is awaiting you. You need to work hard and suffer a little bit to get to right, it. Yeah. But if you do that, you will be rewarded heavily. You know, Pat, much, it just, go ahead. this yeah. reminds me so much. It's Like you said, your, your gears start turning, right? And, of course, we're always applying everything to powerlifting and bodybuilding and what. Whatnot, but what you're yep. describing sounds like the six months to prepare for a bodybuilding competition. And even more so, I think it was Mike Menser. He used to have a phrase called physique momentum or metabolic momentum. And it's, I think you're, you're actually providing a mechanism for that now. Because his exactly point was it. You, it builds and it builds and you start to, things start to landslide in a positive direction. And there's almost this subconscious and even physical acceleration where you overcome the inertia in the beginning and then you start building this momentum toward this huge satisfying crucible moment it's larger than life you know uh hyper dopaminergic mental patients are often the people that are hyper religious or they believe that they have powers that exceed the the natural they have they believe they have supernatural ability to communicate with the beyond. They're the crazy people that write letters and do all this sort of stuff and like, uh, you know, put hexes on you and stuff like that. But it's, <laughs> it's all the same thing where it's like you believe that you're on a mission that's, that's greater than anything else. Like right. it's above you, it's yeah. beyond you. It's an out of body experience. It's a decrease of the sensory and the groundedness of, of feedback to the right hemisphere, which is a more realistic hemisphere. Dopaminergic people believe they can do things that nobody else can do. And if you're going to be a high-level athlete, you better have that personality right, and yeah. you better have that belief. Hey, let me ask you this. You don't let, need to suffer. Right. Let me ask you this then, Pat. So you're a scientist, right? Yeah. A lot of what you just said are just – it's straight no-no, right? Like you, you have yeah. to have this collection, this – um. Uh, I think Sagan talked about the you, you know you're part explorer and discoverer and achiever and then you're part bookkeeper you know and right. we can't roll with the emotions like science doesn't care what you want or what you believe right how do you balance mm-hmm. that as a person yourself Well thankfully like what I'm saying is backed by science Yep uh, it's just that it's the science that dives into the psychological realms Um, You know, a couple of books that I think are fantastic on this topic because you can only skim the surface. Uh, uh, Previk, who wrote The Dopaminergic Mind, is, is, I think, you know, absolutely a must read on this stuff. Oh, okay. And and the other book that that I think, you know, it was kind of the, I think John asked the question of like, what do I do with this information? Read the book Grit. Um, You know, uh, Grit is basically... 
in my mind, and, and, the, and the book Grit is about the topic of grit, which I, I think that, uh, Lonnie, you said you've, you're, a, you're a professor right now. Yeah. So you're kind of familiar with all of these uh, predictions. Yeah, so am I. <laughs> yeah, okay. right, John is as well. Yeah. yeah. So you guys are familiar with like, okay, who's going to do well in grad school? We have SAT numbers and GRE numbers and, and uh, we have grade point average and all this kind of stuff. And we still don't know which students are going to bomb out and which ones will do well. But now we have this other metric of grit, which is actually predictive and seems to be right on point. And, you know, West Point uses it and the Navy SEALs use it to predict who will actually make it through that. And um, and I read the book and it's it's essentially saying, like, people that have good dopamine systems are the ones that make it in those things. And it gives you very specific ways to cultivate it. And it it the, the main method is to have a top end goal. Uh, you know, for a bodybuilder, it would be to win the Olympia. And then you have secondary goals that feed into your ability to do that primary goal. And then all of your behaviors throughout life, ultimately, there's a reason for why you're doing those behaviors, because they feed into a tertiary goal, which feeds into a secondary goal, which feeds into your primary goal. So you never have a question about how to spend your day, because you know why you're doing every single thing that you do from the moment you wake up to the point that you go to bed. Right and if you do that, then you're going to actually achieve things that basically almost no one on the planet can achieve. Um, and, and that's the mark of success. Like our society is set up to reward the dopaminergic amongst us because you, know, you need to you need to delay your gratification. Mm-hmm. You need to try hard. You need to have distant, abstract goals that you're striving towards. Like I said, it's all hunting. Right. I think part of what you're describing, it could at least part, partly explain, I think, the fitness community, like when it comes to, uh, you know, hokey training programs or dietary supplements. And again, I'm not bast- I'm not shaming all dietary supplements. Of course, many work and are supported by science. But my point is people want to believe, like you said, maybe yeah. maybe the fact that the the high dopamine people, the dopamine cravers, the dopaminergic people that you, you are describing – uh, maybe the the fitness and supplement marketing works so well to them because they do want something special. They do operate on a, sort of a belief system instead of a conclusion system, you know, and 100%. things like that. Do, do you think there's something to that? Hundred percent. Yeah, I think that um, I think that marketers know this better than we do, and um, and salespeople know it very well. And, and you have to appeal to the limbic brain and the emotional brain and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. because that's what actually drives people to do things. And it's subconscious. It's subliminal. Um, you know, it's, it's those things. So I'm always looking for, like, how do I do that? And I would just say that, like, good program design to me is, is appealing to the dopamine brain because it's giving you – like, I, you know, I was very successful as a coach with uh, collegiate – strongman athletes, partially because I was their professor in their exercise science and sports science classes. So I'm able to explain to them the underlying reason of the physiology, why we are going to train the way that we are going to do. And then I'm putting together program design for them and we're doing it as a team and I'm training with them. And then like three months later, after they finished the semester, they're like, oh my God, that's why we were training that way. And it's like, yeah, that's why. And now they are bought in to a level that is like beyond anything you could ever imagine from a normal client or athlete that you're coaching. And now these guys believe with a level of belief that is bordering on hysteria. And then they go on and they do things like win world championships and break world records. And then the whole strongman community is like, who the hell are these guys from Springfield College? And, um, and and because I'm I'm not interested in doing what everybody else is doing, <clears throat> if I find out that this is the approach and the things that everybody else is looking at, well, I'm going to try to do the exact opposite and focus on everything else that nobody's doing. I don't want to do what everybody else is going to do because I'll end up just like them. I want to do something completely different so I can be completely different and either go down in a, a, a heap and just lose dramatically or <laughs> win on a level that's unprecedented. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like the old Teddy Roosevelt man in the arena quote. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. You will love it, Pat. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes, Lonnie. Yeah. yeah. You've almost just described that. Hey, let me back to the training then idea, the concept of programming. So 
if you get if you happen to have someone who you feel is a less dopamine driven person, are you going to mm-hmm. do programming for that person that requires less resiliency and might be maybe a little easier because they they're just not going to have that belief or what would you do with someone like that? That's a great question and you know, I've kind of bordered on the like I think at a certain point as a coach you get to the idea where it's like well, this person just doesn't have it, so I'm not going to invest in them that hard. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and because you kind of save your your own sanity in that regard, where you kind of focus on the one percent and the ones that are like, you know, the the clear cut, like this kid's got it, they're going to be able to make it. Like, do you really want to focus on your bench players? You know, they're, they're you're always going to have stars and you're going to have bench players. Like, if you're going to win, it's going to be because your stars are your stars. Right, you like, recruited well, you know, in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I don't know, like, at a certain point, like, if you're working in a team environment, you've, you've got to you got to put together what you think is the best approach. And I'm probably going to put the best approach together for the people at the top of the food chain. Um, you know, if I'm working with someone, you know, that I believe is – is in a, in a one-on-one setting. What I've learned in that regard is that people, adults in particular, uh, they don't handle losing very well. You know, they, they, uh, they need to win. So you have to make sure that you set them up for success and that you don't let them fail until they've achieved a lot of successes. If they fail right off the bat, then, you know, you've, you've basically undermined any long-term development. So, even if you think it's so remedial and so easy, you have to let them win and you have to positively reinforce them. And, you know, you have to, it's almost, it's like a, an adult with a child, like a child doesn't have a fully developed system. Like they, they don't know how to interpret social information. So the parent has to provide them with an external piece of feedback. So the child knows how to interpret everything in life. And then the child learns through modeling over time. It's the same thing with with working with a person one-on-one with fitness. Like you have to tell them you did a good job. And and I think the more uh, feedback you can provide for them, and and this is where things like velocity-based training and gym aware are super helpful. Like they don't know that they're slow and weak. You have to give them a number. You have to actually give them a score. Uh, Same thing with like, um, you know, an omega wave and lifestyle. They don't even realize that like staying up late and being stressed is going to hurt their training. You have to show them like, hey, last Tuesday, your scores were in the toilet. What happened? Oh, well, you know, I had a, a really stressful Monday and uh, and I, I didn't get any sleep. And it's like, oh, my God, look at that. The number says that I was in the toilet. How about that? And then they start having these these breakthroughs. And so you just you develop it like you would develop any other system. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you just have to be very aware that it's a very remedial system. It's like having a 10-year-old a that can't bench press the bar. And in your mind, you're like, are you kidding me? But that's just where they are. So so work within that and undershoot what you believe their abilities are because they're going to be pretty pathetic. But but they have <laughs> they, they can go someplace. You just have to, you know, kind of put yourself on, on suspension of your where you think normal is. Right. Yeah, and you know we're just about out of time, but what you're what you're talking about now is it reminds me a lot of the general population and how you know people they feel guilty after the holidays they flood into the gyms in January and they're gone by now, but by roughly sure. Valentine's Day because they haven't they don't have a system set up with their trainer or their program that creates momentum, right? So like one of the That's things good. that I, I I've been moving toward more and more is in weight management settings. Don't focus on body composition out of the hole with someone who's, you know, middle-aged, stressed out, parent, whatever. They don't have an athletic background. Focusing on strength is something that provides reward because that develops rapidly, you know, and they see the success. And then eventually you can start to move toward maybe body composition things. They've got got confidence. They've got some momentum, you know, and it's kind of like what you're saying, I guess. It's it, man. And I just think that um, I've just learned the value of numerical quantitative feedback um, mm-hmm. and picking the right things, as you just said, that actually can improve. So it's like I'm going to focus on aerobic fitness and slow velocity strength because those things have the greatest, uh, you know, upward side there. You can yeah. you can develop those things. A yeah. lot of return on investment. 
right. Good versus stuff. like, I'm not going to start with vertical jump. <laughs> right, right. No, good yeah. stuff. Okay, any closing thoughts then? Um, ways people can reach you? I, you mentioned starting, developing your own you know, business and whatnot in New York. Um, yep. Contact info, whatever. Sure. Um, you know, uh, I'm on Facebook under Pat Davidson. I, um, I work with, with rebelperformance.com. I've got a number of articles and things on their website. Uh, I've written for various websites and, and done a, a number of podcasts and things like that. Uh, my email address is is pdpdavidson at gmail.com. I got I've got no problem with people just reaching out directly to me either okay. on Facebook or, or email. That's always easy. It goes right to my phone. I'll see it. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm I'm pretty easy to communicate with. If anybody's got any any questions or follow ups or anything like that, just it's much easier to shoot me a written message. For, I, I don't want to talk on the phone. It's just like it's too loud where I am. I have to section off time during my day to not have horns and things like that blaring in the background. Gotcha. Um, you know, but, uh, any, yeah, anytime somebody can write me a specific question, I always encourage specific questions. You know, I think that that, that helps to, to be able to, to get to the, the point. It's always in, interesting with a, a conversation like this today because with, with educated guys like yourselves, it's like let's, let's just have a conversation, see where it goes, and it'll be, it'll be fantastic anyways. Right. So, I, gosh, from I mean, from – Parkinson's to addiction to you know restless leg syndrome or different muscle reflexes there's so much to talk about with dopamine and yet yeah it's fun just to explore that there's a mechanism here and like you were pointing out uh, our listeners they can monitor themselves and, and knowing the mechanisms the underlying machinery looking under the hood it gives you some insight on how to manipulate things you know really does I've never been a fan of like recommendations and I've much always been much more of a fan of of mechanistic understanding of the system because now you can be the architect of the way that it shows itself to you in your environment you know right. like i'm in new york city it's a very different environment as compared to, to anywhere else the people that i work with are basically like lunatics and um <laughs> and starved for any kind of sensory feedback and they're stressed beyond life so it's like what i would do with these people is probably very different than than what people would do in other environments um but if you understand what you're dealing with and, and what the the presentations are of the system, then then you can begin to recognize things when you see them and, and have you'll learn over time what sorts of, of you know stimulus and responses you'll typically get. Right on. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate that. Thank you guys very much. It's fun stuff. Thanks a lot. Okay, everyone. We will catch up with you next week as always. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. So we try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, 
please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.